Welcome back to State Local Government. This is Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is part two of the series on state legislatures. This part is on the legislative process. Remember those Schoolhouse Rock cartoons when you were a kid? I'm just a bill, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Sorry to break out the song, but hopefully you remember that. So that's the basic process by which a bill becomes law in the federal system. And it very much follows a similar path, very similar in state legislatures. I'm going to start with the basics and then explore some other topics, things that are not commonly understood by most people who are just casual observers of state legislatures. We'll get into all that in this episode. Um, the first step of the process is really simple. A bill has to be introduced. That is, some legislature has to have a brilliant idea. Now, it might not be so brilliant, but you can't tell legislators that, right? They have, they have ego problems. Uh, but once they have a great idea, then it gets drafted into the appropriate legal language. Uh, in some states, people other than legislators can propose bills. In Massachusetts, for example, any citizen can propose a bill to the Secretary of State or the Chief Clerk of the House, as long as it happens before a certain deadline. Uh, in some states, Washington and North Dakota, for example, executive branch agencies actually introduce bills directly to the legislature during the opening weeks of the session. Well, usually it comes from a member. So once the bill is introduced, it needs to be referred to committee. All states divide their legislators, legislatures, sorry, into what are usually called standing committees. And both the House and the Senate in any given state are going to have standing committees for the major areas of public policy. There's going to be an education committee, a judiciary committee, health and human services, a tax committee, a budget committee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now, which ones they have, the organization of what they look like, it's not identical from state to state. Some states divide out budgeting, which is viewed more as a planning activity from appropriations, which is the actual authorization to spend money and assign those different committees. Others might take um, a major policy like education, for example, and create two committees, one for education finance, one for education policy. Minnesota used to do this uh, up until not that, not that long ago. Uh, it's also common for each chamber in a bicameral legislature to each have a full set of standing committees for each of these areas. So there's going to be a House Judiciary Committee and a Senate Judiciary Committee. Okay, they're, they're, they're both, both houses, both chambers are going to have basically very similar committees doing similar things, similar jurisdictions. Um, as was mentioned in the previous part, uh, the first part of this uh, three-part episode, whoever holds political power in the chamber, the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, whoever that is, they're going to have the ability to decide which committee is going to get the bill. Especially, there are very few hard and fast rules about which committees have jurisdiction over which issues. Uh, I'll give an example from my own experience. When I was Chief Clerk of the House, in North Dakota many, many years ago, the speaker, uh, there was this bill to establish a state human rights commission. And the speaker decided, I'm going to send that to the House Government and Veterans Affairs Committee because they dealt with the organization of executive branch agencies, amongst other things, but that was one of the areas in their purview. He could have easily sent it to the House Judiciary Committee, which deals with civil rights issues. The speaker liked them. He looked at the, at the makeup of the two committees and said, oh, GVA, Government of Veterans Affairs, is more likely going to kill this bill or, refer, or recommend it not pass. And that was the position he preferred. So 
he decided to give it to that committee because it, he thought it would be more likely to produce the result he wanted. And that's very commonly done by leadership um, because they can look at committee makeup and look at which committee is more likely to do what they want to happen and give it to the one that's more likely to you know, produce the uh, pre-preferred result. In multiple referral states, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here, now that's less, less likely to be an issue, but the order in which a bill is sent to certain committees can still affect its passage. In most states, the committee chair holds a lot of power because that person can choose not to schedule a hearing or a discussion, and that's usually the end of it. In New York, for example, there's about 10,000 bills introduced in the assembly alone in the average two-year session. Only about 100 are commonly passed all the way through and get signed by, and get sent to the governor for a signature. The other 9,900 never make it that far. The vast majority die upon first referral. The committee chair takes a look at it, chooses not to take an action. Now, there are states, Colorado, for example, has rules which allow the committee membership to force a hearing on a bill, usually by some sort of supermajority vote, two-thirds, three-fifths of the committee members. Uh, there are two places, North Dakota, both chambers, and New Hampshire in the House. There's a standing rule that says every bill gets a committee hearing or a floor vote. Uh, now that's somewhat unusual, but so let's assume that it, the first step is the bill has to get scheduled, right? First, they actually have to decide, okay, we're going to actually look at this thing. They're not just going to throw it in a drawer. If a bill is scheduled for a hearing or sometimes two or three hearings, the committee is going to take testimony, lobbyists, executive branch officials, other legislators, average citizens. Uh, many times the real purpose of this process is to explore. Are there amendments, changes to the bill, which might be necessary or desirable? In some states, the committee can amend the bill. In others, they can only recommend amendments, which then the full House or Senate has to adopt when the bill comes up for a final vote. Assume that our bill made it that far. It made it to hearings. And it maybe even had amendments attached to it. Now it gets reported back to the full House or Senate. Now remember, we're still in the first chamber here. This whole process is going to be repeated on the other side eventually. It will then be placed on the calendar, which means it's going to be scheduled for a final debate and vote. On the, floor, on the floor of the full House or Senate. That's another area, as you remember from earlier, where the leadership has some influence. It's not uncommon for a speaker or majority leader to move a bill either up on the calendar to force a quick vote or keep moving it down to the end of the calendar in order to stall final action. Once that final floor debate takes place, it might be possible for the bill to be subject to something called floor amendments. Now, these are changes that could be proposed or added on top of or addition to amendments that the committee already recommended earlier. Now, some states don't allow this. Uh, some states don't allow it all. In others, they might be allowed in only one, in only one chamber. Uh, for example, the North Dakota Senate allows floor amendments. The House does not. But in Minnesota, floor amendments are possible in both the House and the Senate. So that's going to depend on the rules. Okay? Uh, the rules might also limit floor amendments to certain topics. Changing the amount of money, for example, might be allowable, but the policy language governing the program might not be amendable on the floor. Uh, again, that's going to depend very state to state on rules. Amendments have to be approved, usually by a simple majority. There might be a rare situation where some sort of supermajority is required. And then, once all that's done, then we finally get to a final floor vote. And if that's approved... <sighs> Now it goes all the way to the other chamber and starts all over again. And of course, once the bill has been approved by both chambers in the same format, i.e. with the same amendments, then it goes to the governor for his signature or a veto, and we'll talk later about gubernatorial vetoes 
in the next unit later on in the executive branch. So the first unique thing we're going to talk about is multiple referral. This is a common practice in some states, uh, but not necessarily in every bill. In Minnesota, in Florida, for example, this happens on pretty much every piece of legislation which is proposed. By contrast, in a state like North Dakota, this pretty much never happens, except on bills which would cost a lot of money. Basically what multiple referral is, it's when a bill is sent to more than one committee in the same chamber. In almost every case, these, these occur in some sort of order. They don't happen simultaneously at the same time. For example, let's say we have a bill that's going to cap property taxes, raise the income tax, and then give the extra money uh, from the income tax to public school districts. Now, in many states where multiple referral is not common, the Speaker of the House or the Senate Majority Leader is going to pick a particular committee, right? They could choose the committee that deals with tax laws, often called the Taxation or Finance Committee. They could pick the one that deals with actions of local governments, the local governments or political subdivisions committee, because it's local governments that collect property taxes, right? Or they could pick the education committee, since schools are the intended primary beneficiary, right, of this bill. As, as I discussed previously, the leader is likely going to pick the committee, which is most likely to give him, the, him or her the result they're looking for. Now, in states like Florida or Minnesota, the bill can be sent to all those committees, which have jurisdiction over the issue. In this particular case, maybe, and this is just hypothetical, maybe the bill will go to education first, then tax and finance, then local governments. Now, as I said before, in pretty much all cases where this occurs, these referrals are going to happen one at a time. Think about what would happen if all three committees held hearings and wrote amendments simultaneously in the same time frame. What'd you get? You're going you're gonna to end up with three different bills, right? With three different sets of amendments. That'd be confusing. Uh, in some states, this is used as a way of bottling up legislation. Uh, it, it's often used as a way to slow things down, to stop things from happening. Um, this is particularly true in states with really short sessions, which, and then they don't leave, it doesn't leave enough time for three or four or even seven. I actually saw an extreme case once on a bill I was tracking in a previous job in Florida where they sent it to seven different committees and it didn't really make it. I think it made it through, but barely at the last minute. That in states with really short sessions, multiple referral is more difficult to, to utilize because there's not enough time for all the committees to, to do their work. Next thing to mention, companion bills. This is pro pretty common practice in about half the states, including Minnesota. Uh, as you've no doubt learned by now, particularly if you've read the textbook, most state legislatures only meet part-time. They operate under some very tight deadlines and very tight time frames. One way to deal with that is have the House and Senate, or at least their committees, consider the same issue simultaneously at the same time. So this is what commonly happens in a companion bill process. A House member might introduce a bill, and a Senate member will induce the same exact language in his or her, in his or her own bill. So there'll be, a house, there'll be a House version and a Senate version, but they start off as exactly the same thing. And in our hypothetical example, the House version will make its way through the committee hearing and amendment process on the House side, and the Senate version will do the same thing over there on the Senate side. Then, whichever one passes its bill first, it sends it over to the other chamber, where much of the committee work has already been, right, it's already been done. And then usually what happens there is the second tamer just adds its own amendments, which it's already been working on, pass its version, and then send it back. This tends to speed the process up. Now, uh, as with multiple referral, this is a pretty common in some states. In Minnesota, for, uh, pretty much every bill has a companion in the other chamber. 
In other states, it's not even allowed by the rules. North Dakota, for example, has a rule that prohibits this. And the way they get away with that, or the reason they can do that, is they have they enforce some very tight deadlines on when bills have to pass one chamber or be reported from committee. And then so you don't need companion bills because they operate on a very tight time frame when they have a certain time when every bill has to what they call cross over to the other chamber. So what happens if a house, pardon me, what happens if a bill passes in one form in the house and then the Senate amends it before they pass it? We, we now have two different versions of the same thing, right? So what happens? Well, the House could just accept the Senate's amendments and then pass it on their own, or the House could refuse to accept them. And then the Senate could say, okay, fine, we'll strip off what we did and then just pass the House's original version. If either of those two things happen, it's, it's over. It goes to the governor for a signature or veto or whatever the final process is. What usually happens, of course, is that either the House says we refuse to accept the Senate's amendments, the Senate says we're not going to withdraw them, or the, or the, if, if the House passed the bill, or if the Senate passed the bill first, then the opposite happens, right? But in, what happens if there's a stalemate? What happens if one chamber says, you have to change that, the other one says, no, we won't? What do you do? Well, in those cases, you get what's called a conference committee. So what's the conference committee, their, their job, what's their job? Their job is to work on a compromise. And that compromise then becomes the final version. So usually what happens here is there's equal numbers of members from the House and the Senate. Three is a very common number, three House members, three Senate members. There are some states, Minnesota is notorious for this, where you get these humongous conference committees, especially on the big budget bills and the big, the big uh, government borrowing called bonding bills. And that's because you have all these multiple committees that dealt with the issue. And so all these committee members who worked on it said, I got to be on the conference committee. So they create these huge conference committees. And usually that's who sits on conference committees are the people with the committee jurisdiction. Oftentimes the chair, the vice chair, the ranking minority member, or people like, or at least those leaders appoint who sits on the conference committee. Because the thinking is, you worked on this bill, you know something about it, you know something about the issues, right? So you can help work out the compromise. Almost all states, usually within the rules, there's a requirement that says at least one member of the conference committee of each chamber has to come from the minority party. So you can't just shut out, the, it can't just be, you know, uh, all majority party members from either chamber. You got to give the minority party at least a seat at the table. Um, conference committees, unlike member standing committees, were permanent. There's a you know there's a Senate Agriculture Committee, there's a House Education Committee. Conference committees are not permanent in that way. Each bill, if there's a bill with a dispute, they get their own conference committee. And once that comp once that compromise is worked out and they've come to agreement, that committee goes away. It's dissolved. In the states with the year-round sessions, such as New York and California, the legislature can take up business at any time. Committees can hold hearings, even on issues for which they're not actually be a bill. They can amend budgets, they can make changes to existing laws. But only seven states do that. Only seven states have year-round sessions. So in the other 43, the legislature only meets for about half the year or less. And in some states, there's a handful of states, they're as short as two or three months, or they're only every other year. So you get a couple of challenges presented by the situation. One is, there might not be enough time for long-term discussions or for com for committees to investigate every, you know, every possible solutions to problems without an actual bill. Um, the second is, what happens if something happens immediately? What if there's an immediate event that needs immediate attention? For example, uh, when the I-35 bridge collapsed down in St. Paul in 2007, that happened in August. Legislature wasn't in session. 
They'd been they'd been out since they'd been out since May or June. But some budget appropriations needed to be made in order to deal with the cleanup, planning the replacement. That wasn't going to wait until they came back in January. So many of these part-time legislatures have formed what are called interim committees. Most members will be a member. Most of the people who are you know, members of the House or Senate, they'll be a member of at least one or two of these. Some of them are quasi-permanent, uh, almost like extensions of existing standing committees. For example, there might be an interim committee on transportation or an interim budget committee. Um, some, are, uh, some are temporary, perhaps des designed to deal with a very specific issue. For example, there was an interim committee on education finance reform, uh, which was formed in North Dakota a few years ago. Uh, others have some sort of administrative or oversight role, the Administrative Rules Committee, for example, which reviews and approves regulations proposed by the executive branch agencies. That's a topic we'll talk about later on in the course. Um, these guys don't just meet during session. They meet regularly all throughout the off-season as well. Uh, most interim committees meet regularly throughout the year, although maybe only a day or two a month, maybe less. Some states with short sessions rely very heavily on the interim committees. For In Texas, for example, most of the major budget bills, they've already been reviewed by the Interim Budget Committee for several months before the actual legislature shows up to meet in January. So a lot of that preliminary work and that preliminary discussion has already occurred beforehand. Now, this is different from special sessions, which are sometimes also called extraordinary sessions. We're going to talk a lot about those. We're going to talk more about those in the next unit on the executive branch. What a special session is, it's when the entire legislature comes back for a very brief short session to debate a very specific issue and maybe pass new laws related to that issue. Um, quite a few of these happened in 2020 during the COVID pandemic. Um, many legislators didn't like the idea of just leaving decisions about how to allocate federal grant money, emergency powers, funding schools, uh, providing small business relief, things like that. They didn't want to just leave that up to the governors. So Minnesota, for example, actually held seven special sessions in 2020. They had a regular session from February to May, and then they held seven special sessions later on in the year, mostly to debate the governor's emergency powers and how to spend federal relief funds. Thanks for listening to part two of our special three-part series on state legislatures. Now head to the last episode for a couple of final thoughts. <laughs>